Let's open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 18. Abraham's intercession for the righteous in Sodom. Genesis chapter 18. As the previous section ended, we came face to face with these words. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? That's, of course, a rhetorical question whose answer is a definite no. God is omnipotent. To be omnipotent means that God can do whatever is intrinsically possible to do. Or, God can do what it is not impossible to do. His power is unlimited and uninhibited by anything else. God cannot do that which is contradictory, and it's intrinsically impossible for God to violate his own essence, or as Ryrie called it, the sum total of his infinite perfections. So we concluded last Sunday morning with the assertion that the Lord is able to keep his promises in spite of apparent difficulties and barriers. And that is a very comforting proposition. The remainder of the chapter deals with the question of God's fairness or his justice. Yes, God is omnipotent. But in our study today, we'll ask and answer the question, but will he act in omnipotence in a just and fair way? Now, I don't want to hold you in suspense. Allow me, if you will, to forcefully assert as we begin today that the answer to that question will be yes. God will act in his omnipotence in a just and a fair way. As we prepare to do the exposition on this passage this morning, let me preface my comments today with a few extremely significant theological truths. This may be new information for some and old information for others, but I assure you it's foundational to our understanding of God. And our understanding of God is in turn foundational to genuine, legitimate and honoring worship. So if we want to honor God in a legitimate and genuine and honoring way in our worship, then we need to understand fundamental truths about him as a person. God, as we said a moment ago, is the sum total of his infinite perfections. And theologically, we call this simplicity. Simplicity. God is a simple being. Simplicity, when used of God, means... That God is without parts. For parts can come apart. Simple almost also means indivisible. That is, God is not capable of being divided. There are no seams in God. So there's no place in which the fabric of his being can be torn apart or can come undone. He's absolute unity. And theologically we call this the simplicity of God. We also say God is a simple being. Now, this is significant. It's extremely significant in our understanding of God because, as again, as Ryrie defined God, he's the sum total of his infinite attributes. And oftentimes we will speak, like we did last week, of, of a certain slice of the pie, if you will, like the omnipotence of God. Other times when we studied Psalm 139, we spoke of the omnipresence of God or the omniscience of God or the sovereignty of God or the holiness of God or the justice of God or the eternality of God. And because we are finite creatures, 
And we have to understand we have to understand theology categorically to really get it. We'll take a category out like a piece of the pie and we'll study that. We'll study omniscience. We'll we'll turn it upside down and look at it from every possible angle. We'll we'll taste it, and then we realize that God's all knowing. Same way with omnipotence. But in reality, at the end of the day, God is a simple being, meaning that we really, while we do it to help ourselves understand God. God's really not that way. There is no seam between his sovereignty and his love. There's no seam between his love and his righteousness, or between his righteousness and his omnipotence. Here's here's what we mean when we say God can't contradict his own nature. His love will never act in a way that contradicts his righteousness. It'll always be in perfect harmony with his sovereignty. And his sovereignty, for example, will always act in perfect harmony with his justice and so on. The fact that God is a simple being means that each of his divine attributes work perfectly in harmony with every other attribute. Another way of saying this is that God is going to always be perfectly consistent. It's a package deal. He always, always, always acts with perfect consistency. We could actually say he can't do anything but that. That's who he is. So his sovereignty, in his sovereignty, he will not act in omnipotence in contradiction to his righteousness and his justice, or his holiness, or his love, or any other divine attribute. So you see, when we talk about something like the simplicity of God, it's a very important doctrine to help us understand not just who God is, but how he acts, and to to have every confidence that he's going to fulfill his promises. He's not going to change his mind. He's a seamless being. We can't divide him. That's not in the least bit hyperbolic, in my view, to state that a misunderstanding of God's simplicity has led to grave theological errors over the course of church history. And these grave theological errors have sometimes come from, from people who were otherwise extremely good theologians, But when we take one piece of the pie, let's say sovereignty, and magnify it over all the other pies, and what we've done is we try to put seams in God. It's a package deal. You can't do do that with love either. Other people would like to to just take God's attribute of love and focus entirely upon that as if that's all he is. Now, he is love to the degree of perfection, but he's also sovereign, he's also righteous, he's just, he's fair, he's omnipotent, so... To ask and answer our question again, will, will God use his omnipotence in a way that's fair and just and righteous? The answer is yes. He can't do anything but that. Because not only is he omnipotent, but he's also fair. He's righteous and just. You see, the two go together. It's a package deal. Granted, that's difficult for us to understand. We, again, when we talk about simplicity, that's just another category, really, that we're, that we're introducing But it's an important category to help us understand the magnificence, the incredible nature of the one who sought us and saved us and keeps us by his grace on a daily basis. This is the God that we worship, and we shortchange him, oh, so much. In our thought life and in our prayer life and in the way we act, we shortchange God way too much. God is perfectly fair. You can count on it. And no place has God's perfect fairness been more demonstrated than on the cross. See, God is love. And in his love, he would have been motivated, he was motivated to save us. But his, he's, he's also perfectly righteous. 
and perfectly holy. And in his holiness, if he's going to act consistently with love and in holiness, then he couldn't just turn the other way and say, well, Ollie, Ollie, all come free. Just, we'll just look the other way at sin. He couldn't do it. His, his holiness demanded that a penalty be paid for sin. You see, the consistency and the simplicity of God, the fact that there are no seams in him, the fact that he's the sum total of his infinite attributes is seen in the cross. Perfectly seen in the cross. And he's always going to be perfectly fair, and we see it at the cross. Don't you know that if there was a way to save us without sacrificing his son, he would have done it? Of course he would have done it. He's also infinite intelligence. We call that omniscience. Of course he would have done it. This is the only way it could happen. Now, so that's one preparatory issue, the simplicity of God. There's a second preparatory issue that I'll cover fairly quickly, and that's the idea of intercessory prayer. While prayer should never be reduced to something that's mechanical, because remember, you're speaking to your Father, to your Heavenly Father, the most tender-hearted Father in all the universe. So it never should be reduced to the mechanical. The Scriptures do recognize at least five separate aspects of prayer, perhaps more, but at least these five have been categorized. Confession. Praise, thanksgiving, intercession, and petition. Confession, praise, thanksgiving, intercession, and petition. And you, you may have another one. You may have a list that's a little shorter or longer, but, but generally speaking, that list is agreed to by most who study such things. But the two that we need to consider just briefly are the, the ideas of petition and intercession. Petition is recognized as, as one of us asking something for ourselves. And intercession is when we ask something of our Heavenly Father for someone else. Now, there's a wrong-headed idea in some Christian circles that it's, it's wrong, even, heaven forbid, sinful, to, to ask God in, in terms of petition, to ask Him something for ourselves. Let me assure you, petition is not sinful. God wants you to bring your petitions before Him, to make your requests known unto Him. And, and just, the, just the action of doing that, if we really lay everything at his feet, will remove all anxiety in our life. If we really truly do it, we'll remove all anxiety. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. The words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the believers at Philippi. So there's nothing wrong at all with petitioning for yourself, but that's not really what's going on in this passage today. Although we might say that Abraham is going to make intercession for Lot and at the end of the day, it's, it's to give him some comfort because Lot's his family member. But generally, at least in a broad stroke, Abraham is making intercession. And he's going to make intercession for someone else. Now, bottom line is, he, his, and we, we see hints of this throughout this narrative today, the intercession is really for Lot. But we'll see how he goes about this, and it's a, a really brilliant way that he does. Now, both intercession and petition are legitimate. We need to make sure that we remember that. But in this passage, we'll focus on intercession. And we'll make an observation that in this passage, Abraham is not really petitioning God or interceding to God on behalf of the wicked in Sodom. He's not really interceding on behalf of Sodom itself. He's interceding on behalf of the righteous in Sodom, that the righteous would be spared. It seems that Abraham was aware of the degeneracy of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you would be if you lived in the ancient world at that time, even though they didn't have the modern communication tools and technology. Certainly word got from one village to another. 
And Sodom is not that far from Abraham, where Abraham is here at this particular moment. So he was aware of that sin, that degeneracy, and he was also aware that God had to punish it. God couldn't just look the other way. But he was concerned that God would judge the righteous alongside with the wicked. And we have those concerns today too, don't we? At least if we're thinking, we do. We have a culture that while not maybe not Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's not as, as righteous as it ought to be. And all of us maybe have this same question as well. So the, the lesson today will, be, will hit home. I think it will be very pertinent. Is God going to, to wipe away, to wash away the righteous with the wicked in a culture that is by and large wicked? What's, what happens there? This, is, this sets the precedent. So if you've asked yourself that question, you might want to listen very, very carefully. Abraham wants the righteous to be spared. Now, of course, Abraham has a personal stake in this. We need to get that up front as well. Lot, his nephew, is there. And even though the last time we saw Lot, Lot wasn't acting in a real righteous way, we're going to see that Lot, in a moment, is one of the righteous there. With that introduction, let's take a look at our passage today. Now, it's chapter chapter 18, beginning in verse 16. Read along with me. What I'd like to do is read it in its entirety, and then with the time that we have left, we'll make some comments about the text that will pull all this together and hope hope that you'll see that God in his omnipotence is not going to act in a way that's unfair. Then, in verse 16, Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. In verse 17, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great nation, great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, granted, this is language of accommodation so that we can follow the narrative. God, God already knows what he's going to do, as always known, but this is to help us to kind of to get into the flow. Verse 19, For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Verse 22, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. Remember, these men are two angels. We were introduced to them last week. The men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Verse 25, far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Can't you feel his passion as he prays this prayer? And again, he's got a, per- he's got a stake in it, a personal stake. He is passionate. Far be it from you, Lord, to do this. This is not consistent with who you are. Now, of course, God knows it's not consistent with with who God is, just like God knows that he's majestic, sovereign, wonderful, omnipotent, powerful, incredible, wonderful, but it doesn't hurt for us to say it now and then. It helps us to say it. It helps us to recognize just who he is. Verse 26, so the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. Now, verses 27 through 33, 
almost would be a little comical if they weren't so incredibly serious. This, this is a passionate man, and he's, he's, working, he's working it with God a little bit, but we have to appreciate the fact that he's doing it. So he has this concession about 50. Now listen to the rest. Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I venture to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. And I believe this is, this is very genuine here. Suppose, that, suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will thou destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And he spoke to him again and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said again, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, shall I speak? Suppose there are 30 found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30. Verse 31, and he said, Now behold, I venture to speak to the Lord. Suppose there are 20 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. Shall I speak this only once? Suppose there are 10 that are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 10. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. The two theological, key theological concepts in this passage are the righteousness of God and his justice. Justice is the application of righteousness to a particular situation. And from our introduction, you can probably already put together the theological application of this passage. I hope you can by now. God will act in justice in perfect harmony with his righteousness. So, those who love God can have perfect assurance that he will always do what's right. And that's a very comforting thing. We also see in this passage... The hint, and it is a hint here, it will be more fully developed later, so we'll wait to a later time to more fully develop it. But we see a hint in this passage of the scriptural principle of the deliverance of the righteous remnant. And that is an applicational issue for all of us. It's one of those things we're very interested in, and we ought to be, if we're clear-thinking people, if we're informed people, if you know anything that's going on in the culture, and something about God and his righteousness, we have to ask ourselves that question. Well, what about us? What about this concept of the righteous remnant? Well, here we have it for the first time in the scriptures. We have it introduced. Now, it'll be further developed as the scriptures go on, but here it is introduced. Yes, there is such a thing as the righteous remnant. And yes, we will see that God is going to rescue the righteous remnant. Now, sometimes he rescues the whole nation. We saw that in Israel at one point. He rescues the whole nation because of the righteous remnant. In this case, he's going to rescue the righteous remnant out from the nation. The nation being the city-states of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then those city-states will be destroyed. Either way, your, your responsibility and mine is to be part of that righteous remnant. Not, not to worry, not to have unnecessary anxiety... Certainly we're concerned about our culture. If you're not concerned about the culture, then there's something, there's something wrong with your spiritual life. It really is. But we don't have to have unnecessary anxiety. It doesn't have to paralyze us. And I, and I understand. I, I agree. It's a tough situation out there in many ways. But God will deliver the righteous remnant. You remember that. He will deliver the righteous remnant. In verses 16 and 9, through 19 of this passage, reveal that there's a double motivation for revealing the coming judgment of Sodom to Abraham. This was that part that God is speaking to us kind of in terms of accommodation. But first, one of the reasons is that Abraham is going to be a blessing to the nations. And if he's going to be a blessing to the nations, 
then God is reasoning here, and again, this is language of accommodation, but God is reasoning that if Abraham is to be a blessing to the nations, then he needs some sort of explanation why there's about to be two fewer nations that he's going to be a blessing to. That's one thing. Second, Abraham would have the responsibility to teach justice and righteousness to his descendants, just like we do, by the way. We have a responsibility to teach that to our kids. Now listen, if we don't understand anything of justice and righteousness, how are we going to teach it to our offspring? So you see, this is an object lesson for Abraham as well. That's the second thing. First thing, there's going to be two fewer nations. Abraham deserves an explanation about that. Second, if he is given the responsibility to teach something to others, he needs to see that in action first. And that's what's happening here as well. If one is to secure the blessings of God, they must live in conformity to his will, which means living righteously. And Abraham is going to have the responsibility to teach that to his offspring. Now, verses 21 and 22, I want to read these again, and then I have a very important comment to make about them before we continue. A parenthetical comment, but it's extremely important. Verses 21 and 22, or rather, 20 and 21. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they've done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not... I will know. Now, I want everybody to listen very, very carefully to these next couple of moments. If you don't hear anything else, please, you need to hear this. It's extremely important. No, the biblical text here labels what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah as sin and exceedingly grave. We'll learn from the next chapter that the action that is here called sin is unrestrained homosexuality. Now, I must be careful here under today's legislative standards. I have no desire to break any law, but at the same time, I will never compromise biblical truth. I do not speak for this president or any other president. I speak for God. What the Bible calls sin is sin, regardless of of the cultural or the current cultural or current political climate, regardless of what any legislation, any president signs into law. The Bible is not ambiguous when it comes to the action of homosexuality. It is a sin. Having said that, and it is critical that you hear this, oh, so critical, the Bible does not authorize any individual to do acts of violence to someone because they are practicing homosexuality. Now, let me say that again. The Bible does not authorize any individual to do acts of violence to someone because they are practicing homosexuality. Now, there was some prescription for this to the nation Israel under the Mosaic Law. But we do not live under the Mosaic law in this dispensation. Therefore, no one who hears these words from me, either in person or on audio tape or on videotape, in this present time or at any time in the future, should understand anything that I say to constitute an encouragement on my part for you to perform violence on anybody, on anybody, including homosexuals, 
if God desires to judge someone who's practicing any sin, that's his business. It's not mine, and it's not yours. If you do violence to someone apart from legitimate self-defense, as is described by the laws of the state in which you reside, you're guilty before God, and God will deal with you. And let me just say this as one final statement. No one is authorized to alter these comments in any way, whether on audio tape or on videotape. These statements should stand as I just made them. I'm not so concerned with anybody here going out and doing something that's truly idiotic. But I don't want somebody hearing this tape at some time in the future and using this as an excuse to go do violence to someone who is not practicing the, the lifestyle that they feel like they should practice. And by the way, homosexuality is only one sin. It happens to be the sin that is mentioned here. But if we went out and did violence to every, everybody that's committing a sin that we don't particularly care for, uh, there would be blood in the streets. There would probably be blood in the pews, too. So I hope, I hope that this warning will stand, unfortunately, because of the legislation that was passed last year tacked on to an appropriations bill. In a pretty sneaky way, frankly, in a pretty sneaky way, without public debate, we probably will have to take the time to make sure any time we cover this particular issue that you understand absolutely for sure you have no right to do any violence to anybody because of any sin. You're not authorized to do that. There, there, are, there are legitimate areas of government that are authorized to take care of criminal activity, and unless you're one of those people then you have no right to go do anything to anybody. Now, the key verse in the final section, our passage for today, is verse 23. Wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Well, that does seem to be the question, isn't it? Now, here again, we return to our question. Will the omnipotence of God act in a way that's consistent with his fairness? Will he act in a just and fair way? The answer is yes, he will. To fully appreciate the interchange which expositors have labeled Abraham's intercession for Sodom, it'd be helpful if we identified a couple of terms here. In Genesis, and really throughout the Old Testament, but especially in Genesis, the righteous are those who are related to the covenant, who are those who are joined to the Lord by faith, and who are following his standards of obedience. Now, this is helpful, because when you get to the Psalms, sometimes the idea of righteous and wicked can be confusing. But especially in Genesis, but, but also throughout the Old Testament, the righteous are defined this way. Those who are related to the covenant, those who are joined to the Lord by faith, and who are following his standards and obedience. That's the righteous in Old Testament terms. The wicked, on the other hand, are those who have no part in the covenant, and no desire to be rightly related to the Lord or submit to his standards. So we have these broad categories in Old Testament, in Hebrew Bible, of righteous and wicked. And I would trust that you would fall within the righteous category. Now, it's interesting, especially in view of what Lot is going to do in the next chapter. If you've read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, feel free to read ahead before next week. But especially in light of what he's going to do in the next chapter... And what he did previously with the selfishness in, in relation to Abraham, it's a little surprising. It's interesting to note that the new, in the New Testament commentary on this episode, in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7, 
Lot is counted among the righteous. And it is interesting that he is. Interesting to me. Because, I think, you know, if we were just looking at this, I'd say, well, Lot's not behaving like a person who's a believer. Maybe he's not even a believer at all. Well, the Bible tells us that he is counted among the righteous, even though he's going to offer up his daughters in a real grotesque and immoral way in the next chapter. So it's very, very interesting how God looks at Lot. He looks at him a little differently than we do. But we'll consider that next week because we're essentially over with our time here today. But a couple more comments, if you'll allow me. At the end of this chapter, Abraham begins a series of requests that almost look like he's bargaining with God, don't they? But God is very patient. Doesn't chew him out. Doesn't say that's the last one. He's very patient and responds each and every time. I take comfort in that because sometimes when I go to God in prayer, I almost think, Lord, I know I'm bothering you about this. I know I just talked to you a few minutes ago, and I know you hadn't forgot that. But, but just in case, I've got another couple of minutes here. This is really, really important. Could you please? And you know what? God's saying, yeah, no problem. Because God's, God's patient with me, and he's patient with you too, and he wants us to continue to ask, to continue. I like a hacking cough. He wants us to continue to ask him. So God's patient, and he responds, will you spare the city? Will you spare the city? Now watch how Abraham's doing this. He's actually, he's, his petition, his intercession, his request is that the city be spared. But the intent behind that petition is really for Lot. That's, that's who it's really for. So he said, let's, would you spare the United States if we could find two million believers? Would you spare us, Lord? Two million believers that are walking in fellowship with God. I don't know what the number would have to be today. It would probably scare us if we knew what the number was. But I know there were 7,000 that didn't bow the knee to Baal in Israel, and God spared Israel. Uh, again, that's his covenant people. There are a lot of different things there. This whole righteous remnant doctrine, we have to be careful. But he starts out with 50. Let's look at verse 25 again. Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. He's saying, God, that's not you. That's not the God that revealed himself to me. That's not how you act. Far be it from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Yes, the answer is yes, 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 he will. So he goes from 50 to 45 to 30 to 20 to 10. Ten, if there's only ten there. Now, now in, in Abraham's mind, I don't think he pushed it because he probably did the math. You know? I think he did the math and said, well, I got Lot there. I got Lot's wife. I got some kids. They're, they're engaged. You know, so there got to be ten in that city. Now, it's debatable how many people were in that city at the time. Walter Kaiser, the eminent Old Testament scholar, believes that Sodom and Gomorrah were actually fairly large. So that 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10... Once we got that to 10, it would be just a, just a very, very minuscule part of that population. Almost nobody. So it's, by the way, it's not like Sodom had 100 people in it and he starts with 50. That's the point. How many people were there? We're not sure. But Kaiser thinks that there were tens of thousands at least. Don't know why Abram's confident at 10, but I, I think it has to do with counting up family members. You know what, though? Let's see next week. There weren't ten. He's going to destroy the city. Because remember, he promised, I won't destroy the city if there's ten. So the intercession itself is not going to be answered, but the desire behind the intercession is going to be answered, and Lot, his beloved, is rescued. God is good, and he is smart, and he knows better than we do what's really going to make us happy. We'll just trust him. Lot will be spared. 
the believer may be confident that God is righteous and he is fair and he will not destroy the righteous along with the wicked. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. I thank you that you're the sum total of your infinite perfections, that you'll never act inconsistently with who you are as a person, as an infinite person. We thank you for our so great salvation that we celebrated today in communion. I thank you for your fairness and your justice and your love and your consistency. Oh, may we live consistently, consistently with who we are in you. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.